title for the message that I uh, have prepared for you, and we're hoping, of course, that it's God who's prepared it for you, is how spiritually mature people think. And it will be based on Philippians chapter 3. You might have noticed that I'm marching my way through Philippians. And uh, let's just kick it off by reading the first verse in Philippians 3. Paul, writing to this congregation here in God's church, says, Further, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And I gave you a message, oh, about um, two months ago, I guess, on, on joy and rejoicing. But Paul goes on and he says, it's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. So in the same vein, I'm going to cover some of that same material yet again. We're beginning with a call to rejoice, and that's one of the overarching themes of this letter. We have joy because we understand the truth of what God is accomplishing in the world. And because of that, we can have a positive, uplifting, forward-looking outlook on the events and circumstances that life throws at us, good and bad. Last time I talked about joy, I had you all turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, and uh, I'm going to cite that again. The verse says, And because of the joy set before him, Jesus endured death on the cross. The circumstances were bad, but there was joy because there was a sense of purpose and meaning, and that is what we can put in our lives and really need to. The joy Jesus had was not based on material circumstances, rather it was based on knowing that what he was experiencing had purpose and was leading towards a positive outcome. So rejoicing is a way of thinking, a way of thinking, not a way of reacting. Uh, There's some wiggle room on those two, but uh, it's a way of thinking. So let's see. We got... Turn on. A way of thinking. So rejoicing is a way of thinking. Joy is a gift of God's Spirit. It is given to you through the power of God's Holy Spirit. Okay, how does that work? Well, the Holy Spirit gives you, and you and you and you and me, understanding. We understand God's word. We understand what God's doing because the Holy Spirit is working with it. So this Holy Spirit gives you the ability to understand what God's working out. And then his spirit helps us build the confidence and trust in God that the good outcome, which we were all about at the feast, that the good outcome will indeed come to pass by his all-powerful will. And so rejoicing is a way of thinking in that we, we fit our trials and tests into a framework 
They're not just random events, but we fit them into a framework of what God's up to. And rejoicing is the outcome of spiritually mature thinking. Spiritually mature thinking. Maturity implies growth, right? It implies development over time. And we build joy by thinking, by thinking through our trials, our tests, and blessings. And we fit them into the framework of God's great plan for us. And this gives us meaning and purpose. And as I mentioned, Paul says, look, I know that this might seem repetitive. I know I've already told you this. This might seem like the same old stuff, but it's important. And as he says, it's a safeguard for you. It's for your good. It's to keep you on the path. So that's the good stuff. <laughs> what about immature ways of thinking? Because I think, you know, obviously, you know, if there's a mature way of thinking, spiritually mature, there's a spiritually immature, right? One implies the other. So what about immature ways of thinking? Let's take a look at Philippians Chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. Paul says, watch out. So beware, okay, be on guard. Watch out for those dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So what Paul does, he speaks of rejoicing, he says, you know, this is good stuff. You need to hear this over and over. And then he goes right into bad ways of thinking. And says, beware of these ways of thinking. Uh, he's putting an immature way of thinking on the table for some further discussion. Right? It is basically placing spiritual confidence in material circumstances. Kind of the opposite of the whole joy equation that I was talking about earlier. Now, the specific example that he's giving here is circumcision, which is a big, 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 big deal in the first century church. Not so much for us today. I haven't had anybody approach me about circumcision uh, <laughs> in all my time as a pastor. No. Uh, but let's think about how circumcision in that setting and in that situation there in Philippi could affect a believer's thinking in a couple of possible ways, a couple of possible ways, okay? Um, if the person was Jewish, they were Jewish descent, they'd come into God's church, they might think of themselves as superior in God's eyes because they are physically marked as his chosen people. That's a problematic way of thinking, okay? Uh, they might have then thought that their opinions held more weight in the congregation or they should be considered first for positions of authority, leadership, honor. That would cause problems, right? It would. It would cause problems in a congregation. It's an immature way of thinking. Now, if the person was Greek or Roman... They might think that it would be better for them if they became circumcised. And then they could claim attachment 
to the descendants of Abraham through material science. So putting confidence in the flesh. Now in both cases, those who were not circumcised would end up being thought of as like not part of the in-group or the elite groups or whatever. These are immature modes of thinking, spiritual immaturity. Let's just take a look at the circumcision question since it's been brought up. Under the new covenant, the new rite of baptism is the sign of faith. It replaces, sorry, the rite of baptism replaces circumcision and it's a sign of faith. Did I say that right? Yeah. The example that we have from scripture is Cornelius in the book of Acts, chapter 10, right? And that's when this change first became known in the church. They didn't quite get it at first. It was sort of, wow, what's happening here? They were marveling. Wow, God's Holy Spirit comes upon these Romans, these Gentiles. I think it was because they weren't circumcised. However, we find that through Paul, especially Paul, the full implications of these changes, because things did change under the new administration of the new covenant, the full implications of the change were fully developed and spelled out. So let's take a look at some of these scriptures that I've popped up here on the screen. Colossians 2, verse 11. Should be the next book over from Philippians. Colossians 2, verses 11 through 14. This gets right to the core of it, the change in sort of an administrative change. Um, in him, that being Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, and he has taken it away and nailed it to the cross. So there's a pretty clear exposition by Paul that baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of faith and entering into the new covenant and the cleansing of the conscience. Okay, now, go to Galatians 5, verse 6, for a few verses that uh, get misapplied, in my opinion. Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. Okay. Chapter 6, verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Spiritual maturity is getting at. The book of Galatians is all about circumcision, all about this controversy. Okay, Romans 2. Romans 2, verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A person is a Jew, a person is part of the chosen people, 
person has standing with God, if you will, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, which we receive after baptism through the laying on of hands, not by the written code. So these are some scriptures that talk about circumcision, and I think what he's getting at here is saying, look, this stuff, that stuff doesn't matter. It's material circumstances. It's flesh. And for those who are overly focused on um, status according to the flesh, Paul teaches the priority of spiritual growth. Okay. Now that can be taken and people take it and run with it and they go to the touchdown and they spike the ball and they do their dance and they say that's all there is. However, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 7 verse 19. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 7 verse 19 says, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. So there's the other side of the equation, or there's the other side, the other angle on it. So for those who might be spiritualizing away the commandments, Paul preaches obedience. So it's a full message, spiritual growth and obedience. So in this example, which, which Paul used there in Philippians, the immaturity began with having a lack of understanding about doctrine. What, 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 what's the church teaching? What's the church practice? A lack of understanding about doctrine. That will lead to spiritual immaturity. So you want to know the truth. Let's look at some applications. Like, as I said, um, we don't really get a lot of questions come up about circumcision. You know, I've yet to have a guy come up to me and say, do you think I need to be circumcised? It just doesn't happen. So how might this principle apply to us today? Or at one, I see in our day people who believe that the more Jewish they are in their minds and traditions, the more spiritual and closer to God they are. Now, you might not have seen this, but I certainly have. Well, here are some ways that we celebrate the Sabbath. We bake this special bread and we light these candles. And here we do these dances and, and stuff like that. And we have people like that come in and out of our congregation all the time. All the time. The current Hebrew Roots movement is a prime example of that kind of thinking. That I had someone at the feast like that approaching, well, what, what, how do you guys celebrate the feast? You know, what, what, what special traditions do you have? And they wanted, to, they wanted to find out how Jewish we were, basically. And uh, that is not a new covenant perspective. Stuff like that does not matter. It's irrelevant. Another one, here's one that's a little more mundane. A good example, but in material circumstances, ride the way you think. Well, you might say, well, he's rich. I'm poor. Well, God must be more pleased with him than me. There's, you know, just something more mundane, right? That is spiritually immature thinking. So those are some examples where letting material circumstances drive your thinking 
are not mature. They're not the mature way to approach your walk with God. So, be on guard against spiritual immaturity. Be on guard. Remember Paul said, beware, right? Beware. And he's saying, look, um, I'm writing this to you people, and he's writing it to us, and it's, it's there in Scripture for the same reason, as a preventative measure to safeguard. This is for your safeguard, he says, to a preventative measure, implying that the idea, you know, this is my reading between the lines, that the idea hadn't really taken off in Philippi. Although in verse 15, which we will come to, he does indicate that there might be some traces of this kind of thinking in Philippi. And this could be related to the disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche, which we touched on previously. That's found in chapter 4, verse 2. So Euodia and Syntyche may have had issues. They were butting heads in the congregation. Paul wants them to reconcile. He wants them to you know, like work it out. They may have had issues related to pride in their relative material circumstances. But disagreement specifically over circumcision is probably a bit of a stretch. I think I kind of touched on that last time. Uh, because, you know, Paul's referring to those who, who are teaching circumcision as dogs and uh, evildoers, you know. Uh, and as much as some people are off base sometimes in, in, a, in a congregation, I'm not about to call you a dog or an evildoer. <laughs> I better not. And I don't think Paul does this either. I mean, he, can, he says that he considers these women fellow workers with him and servants of God. So the dogs and evildoers, he's probably talking about outside thinking that might have been affecting them, and he's doing this in a preventative way. So this dog analogy is fascinating to me because, you know, uh, people nowadays, they love their dogs, right? They have dogs everywhere. You know, you, you go in the grocery store and there's someone's dog is there licking your ankles because people love their dogs. It's, it's a cultural thing, though. So the dog analogy. Let me, let me just digress for a minute here and talk about dogs. Isn't that a cute dog? Yeah. Silent dogs are the best dogs. Um, one possibility of the dog analogy is Romans. Romans, they often kept doggies and they kept them around their homes as guard dogs. Okay? So the analogy could be, well, these pro-circumcision people see themselves as guardians. Guardians of the gate of entry. Well, you need to be circumcised before we can take you seriously. And I'm here to guard the congregation from all this stuff. That could be one way that the analogy is used. Two, Middle Eastern thinking. This would be your, your Jewish people or people who'd come from the Palestine area, Antioch, and so forth. And they might have been circulating around in a place like Philippi, probably to a lesser degree. But in Middle Eastern thinking, definitely this would be the way where Paul's coming from, dogs were not kept within the home. Uh, dogs were animals that were left to prowl around outside the streets and they would rummage around in the garbage cans and they would eat the scraps. Whatever they could find. So the analogy there might be, well, the pro-circumcision people are just sort of feeding off leftovers from the old covenant. That might be what he means by dogs. 
I just thought it was interesting. You know, why would he call people dogs? Okay, let's get back. That was a bit of a sidebar. Let's get back to the main thrust of things. Trading what is good for what is better. This is a very important theme in Paul and everything that he writes. And because of a lack of understanding of this concept, people see Paul as very polarizing. But let's take a look at Philippians 3 verses 4 through 7. 4 through 7. So he's just talked about circumcision. And then he says, okay, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, because I'm circumcised, right? If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So if you're basing your standing with God on um, material circumstances, well, I'm, I'm better than you. <laughs> That's what he's saying. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. So he's got all kinds of stuff going on for him, right? Um, of the tribe of Benjamin. So he knows his lineage. A Hebrew of the Hebrews in regard to the law. A Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law. Faultless. But whatever were gains to me, what was ever good and valuable for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Well, in former times, Paul had been thoroughly convinced of the circumcision point of view. That material stuff was really super duper important. And he knew the issues. He knew the arguments for and against. He could probably argue upside and then down. And he'd thought the matter through. But he exchanged his old way of thinking, his focus on the material circumstances or a better understanding that he received through the direct intervention and the revelation that he received from the risen Christ. Just quickly, a little bit about Paul and his experience in his doctrine and teaching and understanding of truth. Go to Galatians 1 verse 11, and Paul gives us some background here. He says, okay, folks, um, if I'm going to teach you this stuff, you need to know a little bit about my background. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, verse 17, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. This isn't me thinking the thing through rationally or using human reason. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in, Ju in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's room and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult human beings. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I, before I was, but I went to Arabia. And later I returned to Damascus. Paul was taught directly by Jesus Christ. There's more verses on that, but that's the gist of it. So he was taught by Jesus Christ for three years. And you can look that up in the book of Acts. Um, Galatians 2, since we're still there, just drop down there. It says, then after 14 years, so he just kind of was in the background for quite a while. 
After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time to, with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. So he's been out there in the field doing stuff and teaching, and now he goes to Jerusalem for basically to confer with the apostles to make sure that they're all on the same page. I went in response to a revelation and, a meet, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders or pillars, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus. So during this meeting, what he's saying, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So what he's getting at there is Paul conferred with the other apostles there in Jerusalem about the matter of circumcision. With Titus as an example, and they agreed with what he was teaching. It doesn't matter. So this is where he's coming from, okay? All right, let me get back to Philippians. And let's pick it up where we left off. <coughs> and that would be verse 8. What's more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage. that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings and become like him in his death. So Paul says what he had before, he considered as rubbish. Now, different translations render this word a different way. If you have, I think, the King James says dung. Who has dung? Anyone? No? Well, the King James uses dung. Uh, refuse is another one. You might have that, if, I think, if you're in the new King James. So dung, refuse, garbage. <clears throat> That's how the word is, re- is rendered. We've got to be careful how we uh, understand this verse. Paul does not say that the elements of the old covenant are garbage or dog excrement. That is not something that you would hear from Paul. What he's saying is that what he has found in Christ is so much greater in worth that by comparison, what he formerly had is garbage. Now, I can say that, I believe, with, with great confidence, because Paul elsewhere says, well, the law is holy. <laughs> he wouldn't call that which is holy dog excrement, would he? Not unless he's a schizo. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is The law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Let's just go there, just so you know. Romans 7, verse 12 through 14. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, 
it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Paul had a high regard for both the commandments and the old covenant. It was not garbage. It was not dog excrement. But he knew that the new covenant was better. So the reference there to dung or rubbish is an example of highly dramatic rhetoric, hyperbole, that's used to emphasize the contrast between what is good and what is better. It's a rhetorical technique, and Paul was an excellent rhetorical speaker and writer. Well, we know writer for sure. Now, the book of Hebrews explains in great detail about this whole exchange of what is good for what is better. The book of Hebrews will go through explaining why the new covenant has a better priesthood, right? We had a good priesthood, God's plan was good, but what we have now is better. We have a better sacrifice. What we had was good, but what comes in the new covenant is better. Better promises. Read the book of Hebrews and see how many times the word better is used. So for Paul, it was an exchange of what is good, holy, righteous, for what is better? For what is better? For Paul, I think this was like the parable of the pearl of great price. Uh, let me just read that. It's a super short parable. But if we go back to Matthew 13, this is the whole concept of exchanging what is good for what is better wrapped up in a single sentence. Uh, Matthew 13, verse 45 the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had and bought it. All of the wealth that he had was good, but the pearl of great price was better. And I think that's a very important way to understand a lot of Paul's statements about the law. But getting back to the main thrust of Philippians here, the gist of what Paul's getting at is that measuring your closeness to God based on Jewish traditions or Israelite lineage or wealth or status or other material matters is spiritual immaturity. What matters, what matters is attitude motivation, and obedience. Don't leave that one out. And he said something else in here that I think is taken for a ride. He talks about righteousness of my own versus righteousness from God. Now this is one that really, I think, gets, gets taken in weird directions. So let's talk about this a little bit. So I made a little chart here. You can see the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Okay, under the Old Covenant, righteousness of my own. Righteousness in the Old Covenant. 
Well, the old covenant provided a way for a person to find and seek and find forgiveness and atonement, okay? Which was to offer the life of an animal in sacrifice, right? That's the gist of, of atonement and sacrifice in the old covenant, is it not? If you think about it under that whole scenario, I, the sinner, provide the sacrifice for my sin, correct? I choose an animal from my flock. I bring him to the, the gates of the tabernacle. I provide the animal, and it would cost me something, right? That's the old covenant, is it not? I provide the sacrifice. I pay the price. That's how it worked, right? That's my own righteousness, right? Okay. The new covenant, there's a different way. The new covenant provides a way for a person to find forgiveness and atonement through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is more comprehensive and better. You know, as Paul would say, what is better supersedes what was good. Under the terms of the new covenant, the sinner, me the sinner, I don't provide my own sacrifice. God provides the sacrifice, right? I don't pay the price. God, through Jesus Christ, pays the price. So there's a righteousness of my own, which, you know, it, it, it has a purpose. It serves a function, right? And, you know, I mean, these sacrifices here served a, a good purpose. Paul does touch on this in constantly reminding the people about the price of sin and the cost of righteousness but they are replaced by something better. So they served a good purpose. They were a shadow of what is to come, right, as Paul would say, but they were replaced by something that is better. Righteousness of my own versus righteousness from God. I believe that's what Paul is getting at when he's talking about righteousness. Not this whole idea of imputed righteousness, which I find very confusing. So he also says he wants to know Christ. I want to know Christ. How do you know Christ? Well, there's a variety of ways. Uh, you know, he, he, he talks about the desire to get into the mind of Christ. And in the previous chapter, we, you know, we read through, this is the mind of Christ. And we went through that whole beautiful section in Philippians where you know, Christ divests himself of glory and he comes as a servant, dies on the cross. The mind of Christ kind of exemplified there. Uh, so Paul says, I have this great desire to get into the mind of Christ and know what he's all about. And this understanding is closely linked with experiencing suffering. That's what he says. Experiencing suffering. He says, uh, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings. Ooh. Ugh. <laughs> to know Christ? Ah, oh, that's great. I'm not so sure about the suffering part, though. Who likes suffering? Anyone? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, if you liked it, I don't know if it'd be suffering, but that's kind of an abstract conversation. This understanding is closely linked with suffering. And specifically, Paul, you know, he's zeroing in on the suffering of Christ. Now, in bygone eras, some people have taken this concept 
and um, have sought this knowing about Christ through subjecting themselves to physical pain. Self-scourging, mock crucifixion. I mean, you've probably seen, they do this in South America quite a lot, where someone goes through a mock crucifixion and they parade the person down the street and stuff like that. That's what this is getting at, participating in the sufferings of Christ. Um, seeking out martyrdom, you know, that, that we don't see that so much anymore because people will go to jail for that, but in past times, yeah, people did that sort of stuff. However, the suffering of Christ, think about the suffering of Christ for, for a minute. Um, I put it to you that the suffering of Christ encompasses more than the 10 to 12 hours of his scourging and crucifixion. I put it to you that it's more than that. That's definitely part of it. But through his ministry, Jesus suffered in other ways as well. Humiliation. He didn't have to put up with the stuff that people were throwing at him. It was humiliating. He was God in the flesh. Just being a human being was in some ways somewhat humiliating. Uh, he encountered deceit. One of his own turned against him. Indifference. Those who did not care. A person like Herod, for example. Rejection. And scoffing. People laughed at him. Those are forms of persecution, if you will, suffering. Do you like being laughed at? I mean, you're not telling a joke to someone laughing at you because they think you're a fool. Do you like that? Do you feel good about it? Do you like people ignoring you? Do you like knowing the truth and having people say, you're nuts, get out of here? So, why, why did Jesus suffer in this way? Well, because he told people the truth that they did not want to hear. They didn't want to hear it. So I'm going to put my ribbon in this time so I can find it better. Go to John 15, verse 20. Jesus talks a little bit. This is before he goes through the physical pain of the, uh, the crucifixion. In John 15, verse 20, he says, Remember that when I told you a servant is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So he's saying, you're going to suffer the same way as well. And he's talking about, they have persecuted me. So he's talking about all this stuff that he's experienced while he's walking around trying to help people. But he gets treated like garbage. Another good one, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange was happening. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for this spirit of glory and of, sorry, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Insults is an example of, of suffering, right? He's not talking about being arrested by the Gestapo and, and you know, chained up and poked with cattle prods.
So let's get back to Philippians. I say that just because when we talk about participating in the suffering of Christ, I think it does a disservice to think of it only as physical pain. There are a lot of ways in which the church of God experiences persecution even in our own day. I think that mostly what we're getting now is scoffing and indifference. But that's hard to put up with, isn't it? Do you like being considered a fool? No. It grinds on you. Okay, in Philippians 3, verse 11, we'll pick it up. Paul says, okay, with all this said, and so, (coughs) somehow, through all this, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Goals, all right? Goals. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and moving forward towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul speaks of the resurrection, his own personal resurrection, as a possibility, not as an inevitability. If, if somehow I can, you know, get through this and reach my goal, it's a goal that we have and are constantly and should be constantly reminded of, which we must continue to work toward with effort, but also with confidence, also with confidence. Now, doctrinally speaking, doctrinally speaking, Knowing that there is a future resurrection is guaranteed. I know that. I know there's a future resurrection. I have no doubt about it. And scripture is very plain. There's no doubt there's going to be a resurrection. And it's going to happen regardless of what human beings say or do. But my personal status or your personal status on that great day is subject to God's approval. So that's the way in which something can be certain, yet also conditional. Uh, in the NIV translation, uh, verse 14, and I'm reading the NIV, it, it says, uh, I think a doctrinally misleading translation, it, it says, uh, they insert the word heavenward, right? God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Whereas the text simply says, upward. Positive motion. Okay? The Living Translation, New Living Translation, the ESV, the uh, New King James, I think they all get it right there, where they say, the upward calling. You know? That's where that cheerleader slogan comes from. The upward calling. So... <clears throat> Keep your eyes on the goal. Keep your eyes on the goal. The goal. Now this goal concept is built around this word, teleos. That's a Greek word, okay? And the word is very often used in the letters of Paul, and it's translated in a wide variety of ways in English. The most common word 
used to translate teleos is, anyone want to guess? You know? Perfect. That's usually how the word teleos is translated. Perfect. Okay? And it's just basically the same word as you find in other places where it's translated very differently. The most common word, being perfect, creates some misunderstandings, in my humble opinion. Because the meaning of the word teleos is far more than what we think it is. It means a direction uh, towards a purpose, the end or goal of our actions, completion. That's what the word means, okay? Um, if you look at teleos in verse 12, a lot of Bibles will say made perfect. Right? Your Bible might say made perfect. In verse 15, who are mature, say in my Bible. Oh yeah, I didn't read verse 15, did I? Well, we'll read that soon enough. In verse 19, whose destiny is destruction. Those are all different ways that this word teleos is translated. Okay? These mean something very different than perfection. Because the meaning of the word is direction, purpose, forward momentum towards a good end. The idea, I think, that comes out through the translation of the word as perfect is, and I have heard this from a number of people, is that scripture's teaching that somehow we must become flawless to be acceptable to God. And then people rebel against that because they say, well, no one's flawless and how is this possible and how can anyone become perfect? And you see a lot of people parade themselves around saying, well, I'm an imperfect Christian, which is just stupid because if you actually look at the meaning of the word, it means you're a, correct, you're a Christian with no goal, no direction. It's just, it's just dumbness because the word perfect means something very different in the English language now than it meant in 1611 and from the word teleos. And we establish those goals. I mean, because teleos can be pointed in a good direction or a bad direction, right? We establish those goals based on sound doctrine and teaching and the word of God. And then we press forward towards that goal with purpose. And that's our source of joy. All that Paul has said spells out how spiritually mature people ought to think and not think. And it's a mixture of doctrine and attitude and perspective. And it's a way of thinking that leads to finding joy in your walk with God as you move towards the good goal that he has promised. So let's pick it up in Philippians 3 verse 15. And we'll just read these two verses, 15 and 16, which say, all of us then who are mature, and that's where I got the title from, spiritually mature, all of us then who are mature, who are teleos, who are fitted for a purpose, and that's what God's all about in the spiritual creation, 
decking you out with everything you need to fulfill the purpose that he has in mind for you. All of us then who are mature should take this view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So that kind of implies, as I mentioned earlier, that there were, were some people in Philippi who might have been thinking a little differently. And so this is a little bit of course correction for them. Okay? Or maybe they were simply just leaning in that direction, not causing turmoil, but they were leaning in that direction. And it's a preventative, you know, what Paul's getting at is preventative teaching. And um, Paul's outlined... The, uh, the proper take that they ought to have on reality. And then as he says, you know, and, and I realize some people are still working through this and I'm going to let you work through it. You know, give, give, gives the people good instruction, good guidance, points, the, points to the proper goals, and then trusts that God through his spirit will enlighten them as needed. And, you know, sometimes you see that in the church where you think, well, why doesn't, why doesn't the pastor deal with that person? They clearly have a problem. Well, <laughs> Paul's letting people who have some you know, they're fuzzy here and there. And he's saying, look, you know, I'm going to let this be and I trust that God will work it out. This is kind of, you know, so you might think, well, that's kind of dangerous. You can't let that go in a con congregation. Things could go horribly awry. Well, you have to let people work some things out on their own. A person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. This is how spiritually mature people think. Give others time, space, but good direction and guidance. And follow good examples is what, what Paul is going to get into next. Pick it up in verse 13, uh, 17 with me. And he says, okay, join together, folks, in following my example, Paul, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, and he's thinking there of Titus and Silas and all the people who work with him, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, and their destiny, their teleos, is destruction. Some people have the wrong goals, and their goal is destruction. Their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things, material circumstances, material trappings, okay? <clears throat> But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Man, there's a whole sermon in that one section of the verse there, but I'm, I'm going to leave that for someone else to, to tackle at a different time. I think we talked about that somewhat at the feast. What Paul is saying here, and he's, you know, this is a very um, pastoral kind of an approach. He's, he's talking to people about what to do. So he says, follow good examples. And he cites himself and Titus and Silas and fellow workers. You have us for a pattern. And he draws these co-workers in and says, okay, you've got these other people. Why? Because Paul wasn't there all the time. You know, could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, Paul, he wasn't there. For years on end, he wouldn't be there. So he had to point out some other people. 
and one of them is um, a fellow that comes up elsewhere in the letter here, um, Epaphroditus is mentioned. So this is a local leader, and he points to this guy and says, follow us, the, the people who have been designated as, as leaders in the congregation. And Paul kind of uses them as proxies because he's not there all the time. Not there all the time. <clears throat> he's, he talks about people who have bad goals and tells us that their end goal, you know, people, people who think differently, who just can't get with the program, their goal is destruction. In other words, non-life, non-being. The diametric opposite of Jesus or Paul, the good examples, or the mature Christian. He says their God is their stomach. And I think this is possibly a reference to ritual fasting, which is another, uh, it could be a Jewish tradition. It could also be Gnostic, but it's people who are um, basing their spirituality on physical things. Fasting's good, but ritual fasting was a little different and it caused a lot of problems. Actually, the book of Romans gets into that in quite a bit of detail. It could just be uh, talking about hedonism as well. We really don't know. He also says their glory is their shame. I think this could be a euphemistic uh, way of referring to their genitals and circumcision. He, he did talk about it earlier, you know, that's kind of one of the themes there. And both of these are just, you know, extra add-ons of immature thinking, focusing on earthly matters. Don't do this, folks. So let's add a little bit of detail to our goal. Nice detailed plant there. He, taught, he says our if we read it here and it said our citizenship is in heaven. That's what your Bible says too, right? Yeah. Okay, so that phrase, citizenship in heaven, I think is a little off. It could be translated as our form of government is in heaven. Our form of government is in heaven. I like that. It could be our form of political alignment is in heaven. In other words, or the, you know, the laws by which it will be administered, the whole system is in heaven. Our, our system of governance. In Greek literature, the word there, and I won't get into all, you know, trying to pronounce the Greek words, the word there that's translated citizenship is, in Greek literature, it is not used as citizenship. It's not, what it, not how it's used in actual Greek literature, other Greek literature. It's not, not translated citizenship. It's form of government, okay? The translation citizenship isn't wrong, I just don't think it captures the full meaning of the word. Because your goal is more than your own personal citizenship or your own personal salvation. God has chosen you to participate in the final stages of his plan of redemption for all humanity. Given you a role to play, to be seated alongside Christ and assist as leaders and teachers in a new system of government, a form of government that is presently reserved in heaven, which is coming soon to planet Earth. Again, we spoke about this at the feast a lot. Our form of government is in heaven. And now at present, that, that rule, the rule of God, is in the heavenly throne room. 
However, it will come to earth and it will be established and enforced on earth when Christ returns. And you are already citizens, citizens of that coming kingdom, that way of operating, that political alignment, that form of government, that system of laws. That's what it's getting at, which is bigger than your own personal citizenship. You're already citizens of that coming kingdom, and you should live by its laws and its ways. And this is just one more place where I believe, you know, it's very obvious that Paul preached the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. Jesus preached the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. And the church of God preaches, well, is tasked with preaching and teaching the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. That's our job. So in conclusion, let's just read Philippians 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Those who are spiritually mature allow this understanding and perspective of the goals, where we're all headed, and the purpose of it, to give them confidence and joy so that they might rejoice even in circumstances that are not so great. And filter everything that you think and do through this foundational principle of purpose and direction and goals. And in this way, seek first the kingdom of God.